If you've brought your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have ushers with Bibles and we'll make sure that you can follow along with us. Uh, Mark is the third book in the New Testament. The Bible has two halves, so to speak, Old Testament, New Testament. We'll be in the New Testament, the third book, uh, second book, Mark, Gospel of Mark. If you remember last week, last week Jesus pulls his disciples aside, actually not just his disciples but the crowds with them, and he explains that to follow Christ is to deny yourself. You can't follow Christ and also cling to comfort and easy street and only, do, only take the path of least resistance. Um, in many ways, the Christian path is the path of much resistance, sometimes most resistance. Uh, he tells his disciples, you have to pick up your cross, your own cross, to follow me, this, this instrument of execution. It, you're going to feel like you're dying, and some of you are going to die for me. Um, as we know, these disciples that are listening to Jesus when he tells them, when he tells them this, uh, they're looking ahead toward their own executions. And of course, many, many Christians around the world even today have to give their life to not deny Jesus. But even those of us that don't get executed, the Christian life is a difficult life because you're representing Christ and the world hates him. So you can't follow Christ if your number one desire is to be liked by people, to be favored by the world. The two don't match. And so last week's sermon, I know it was, it was, it was a kick in the pants. It is for me too because that's how the passage, that's what Jesus was doing in the passage, letting them know, hey, listen, if, if you think you're signing up for something else, I want to make it really clear right now that that's not what the Christian life is about. But what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just give them that hard word and then leave them there. He doesn't just cut them and leave them bleeding, see you later, sign up for this or, or go home. But then he gives them something to encourage them. He gives them something to uh, give them hope, something to cling to when they are standing in that execution line or when... They are being verbally reviled. Let's find that in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Mark. Because this is also what we need to cling to if we're going to endure even the light persecution that sends us scurrying into corners. At the end of this chapter 8, he tells them uh, that if he's denied, then he will deny them. And then if you look at that first verse of chapter 9, some of your Bibles have it still in the same paragraph as the last paragraph of chapter 8. It says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he, he, he gives them this difficult word that the Christian life is difficult. You have to bear your cross. You must deny yourself. People aren't going to like you. You might even get killed. Uh, you're going to feel like you're living a constantly uh, cross-centered life, meaning excruciating. 
that's the, the etymology of the word excruciate, that's what it is. You're on a cross all the time. It's painful. And then he wants to give them something encouraging, and he says, some of you are here are not going to die. You're not going to taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I'm going to come as the king of the kingdom of God. I'm going to come in power, and you're going to get to see it. Now, those of you who've read the Bible before, those of you who are just even awake this morning, will probably ask yourself, wait a minute, this was 2,000 years ago, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. How is that encouraging? How is it encouraging to tell a group, hey, you're not even going to taste death until you see me returning, the kingdom of God coming, breaking through the clouds. And not only did they have to taste death, but 2,000 years worth of generations continuing to taste death. And Jesus hasn't done what he said he's going to do. So I can see how maybe that would be encouraging in the moment, but eventually that would be not only not encouraging, but it would be very discouraging. Does Jesus even do what he says he's going to do? He's going to give us some hope to cling to, and that hope is there's nothing to cling to there because it's not there. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Well, I think the misunderstanding is when we take what Jesus is saying here as speaking only of that return that we read about, that second coming, his coming uh, on the white horse to eradicate evil and um, usher in his kingdom fully. But it's not what he's referring to immediately. What he's immediately referring to is his transfiguration, which we're going to see in a moment. But just bear with me for a second. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record the transfiguration that we're going to see in a moment. If you're wondering, what is that, the transfiguration? We're going to see it. They each record that, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each of them, when they record the moment of transfiguration, before that moment, they put that verse. Some of you are not going to taste death until you see. So if you just follow Mark, follow what he's doing here, he's saying, here, Jesus made this promise, and when did Jesus do that promise? Six days later, we see it in verse 2. So here's what he does. After six days, see, we're wondering, what? It's been 2,000 years. Mark is telling you, six days. Jesus took him, took with him Peter, James, and John, it's kind of his inner circle, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Okay. Now, it might seem a little bit weird. What is happening here? Well, normally, um, normally, I don't bring up what the Greek word is because the English word is better because we don't speak Greek, right? Oddly, in this scenario, it's kind of the reverse. We don't really think of the word transfigure, but we know what metamorphosis is. And the Greek word behind transfigure is the word for metamorphosis. Uh, it's to change. It's to, to have your form radically made different. That's what transfigure means. And so after six days, he takes Peter, James, and John. They go up a high mountain alone by themselves. They're away from the, the crowds and away from the other disciples. And Jesus was completely changed in front of them. What did that look like? 
Well, even his clothes became radiant. His clothes were glowing, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. What else is Mark going to draw on? There there were no neon lights. There were no spotlights. They didn't have electricity. I mean, it's it's as you couldn't bleach it this white. That's how white it was. And it was radiant, glowing, intense white. Now what we see happening here is an echoing of what we've seen in Exodus when Moses climbs up a high mountain and Moses is, uh, sees the glory of the, of the Lord and Moses comes down from the mountain with his face glowing and they've got to put a veil on him. You remember that? Now, this is echoing that. And another way that it echoes that Uh, is the cloud that we're going to see in the next couple of verses in a moment. But also, Mark nowhere else tells us how many days it takes him to do anything. Mark is very not detailed. That's how he's able to give us the shortest gospel of the four gospels. He's sparse with the details. He doesn't give many details. And only this time in the entire book does he drop a little hint like after six days. Why did it take six days? Well, when you go back and read the account of Moses on Mount Sinai, it was six days before he encountered God's glory. So Mark is depending on, uh, even though his main audience, many say, are, are, are not Jews, are Gentiles, specifically a Roman audience, Mark is still Jewish, and he's thinking back to what this matches in the Old Testament. And it's this moment where Moses encounters the glory of God and Moses' face was shining. So is the encouragement supposed to be, hey guys, you might die, you're going to get persecuted, but be really encouraged, I'm like Moses? Not quite. It's be really encouraged, I'm greater than Moses. Um, Look at verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. Whoa, here they are. (laughs) And they were talking with Jesus. Now this is getting real weird. You have these two guys from the Old Testament, and they're back. And how do you know they're Moses and Elijah? How did the disciples know? Were they wearing name tags? They didn't have pictures. But they hear them talking. And so Jesus addresses them as Moses and Elijah, and Moses and Elijah address them as Lord. And they're having a discussion so in this, as they're eavesdropping on this discussion, they recognize that one of them is Moses and one of them is Elijah. And Peter, in his typical form, unable to not say anything and contain himself, decides to say something. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, it is good that we are here. Thank you, Peter. Thanks. I'm glad you think this is good. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now you might go, but Peter's weird. Like he just wants to go camping? What is he doing? He wants to pull out a few Coleman tents and let's have a s'mores? What are we? Not quite what he means by tent, but he wants to create uh, little booths or tabernacles for a dwelling for these prophets and for Jesus so that we can contain this moment. Let's keep this. Maybe he's thinking maybe from this mountain we can create a little headquarters and, and start kicking Rome out of our land. And who knows what he's thinking? But to cut 
Mark, uh, to cut Peter a little slack, in fact, many scholars believe that we're getting this account from Peter. Uh, Mark is writing this, hearing the eyewitness from Peter himself. And you can hear Peter recounting it and thinking, I know this sounds ridiculous, and so he, said, he provides verse 6. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. You know, I, I didn't know what I was saying. I was like, hey, let's put a couple booths. Uh, okay, that's weird, Peter. But he was terrified. So when you think about this moment, we often miss the terror in Scripture. Um, you know, when you go to the bookstore and you see angels, what do they typically look like? Little cuddly babies with the little fat, chunky legs and little harps and curly hair. When you read angels in the Bible, people fall over. The angels have to start by going, don't be afraid. Why would they be afraid? Because it's terrifying. And so Jesus has this moment that tops all the angel sightings that we see in Scripture. And then you've got Moses standing there, Elijah standing there. These guys are supposed to be dead. Elijah didn't really die, but he's gone. And now they're here, and they're talking with Jesus. Jesus is clearly greater than either of them, the way they're talking to him. And they're out of their minds with fear. And so he just stumbles something to say, Let's, how about we do a few tents? Then verse 7 says, a cloud overshadowed them. There's the cloud from Mount Sinai. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In the Old Testament, when Moses was preparing for passing the torch to the next leader, Deuteronomy, he tells the people, uh, the Lord is going to raise up a prophet behind me. Listen to him. And now God is saying through the, out of the cloud, he's saying this is the ultimate one, the, the, the best prophet, the best priest, the best king. Listen to him. This is not anyone that's like Moses. This is not someone that's like Elijah. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than the greatest giver of the law, and he's, the, he's greater than the greatest prophet, protector of the law. Listen to him. How does this serve as an encouragement? Why should this help the disciples when they've been told that they have to deny him? The last thing I want to do is just show you that the two are connected and that this is supposed to encourage the disciple in the hard life because of how the episode finishes off, verses 8 to 13. We'll look at it quickly. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Elijah and, and Moses are totally gone. And then verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So another injunction to be quiet. Don't tell anyone about this yet. When I rise from the dead, then you can tell people. Verse 10, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They don't get it. And remember we talked about them being half blind still at this point. And they asked, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come. Now, really quickly there, we see a lot of Elijah stuff. We saw it in the beginning of the gospel. Why is there this expectation that Elijah will come back? Well, you remember I mentioned a moment ago, Elijah didn't die. 
God took him up. And so there was, in, in those days, there was this uh, Jewish expectation that Elijah would come first to usher in the kingdom. He would kind of prepare the way for the Lord to do all of his apocalyptic, world-ending, wicked-removing, wickedness-removing work. And so they expected Elijah to come back to do that. And so their minds still aren't on the track of death and the cost because they don't even know what resurrection means. So they just want to start talking about, isn't Elijah supposed to come first and then this awesome stuff is going to happen? He was just here a moment ago and now he's gone. What's happening? In the verse 12, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's telling them, you're, you're looking ahead to the big victory moment and you keep skipping the Old Testament passage to talk about the suffering moments. And then he says in verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So who came to prepare the way for Jesus and then was killed for it? John the Baptist. So what Jesus is telling them is you guys are still looking in the horizon for Elijah. I'm saying he came. Not Elijah himself, but one that fulfills that Elijah role of preparing the way. He did prepare the way. And what happened to him, guys? See, he's still, he, they're still talking about victory, victory, and he's like, he's bringing it back down to before victory, what is your experience going to be like? Before glory, what is experience going to be like? Before the crown, what does it look like to bear the cross? So Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. They killed him. So Jesus Begins by telling them discipleship is going to be costly. He ends by reminding them that discipleship is going to be costly. And so therefore we have another Markin sandwich. The meat in the middle is this transfiguration. Jesus kind of pulling back the veil and showing his glory. Now why is that supposed to be encouraging? It's not encouraging because it's a false promise. It's not encouraging because he says I'm going to return before you die and then he didn't. What he's saying is, six days later, he allows them to see the kingdom of God coming with power, and that's in the transfiguration. That's clear. Now, why is the transfiguration a display of the kingdom of God coming? Because Jesus is telling them, you're going to see me stripped, you're going to see me beaten, you're going to see my beard plucked out of my face, you're going to see stripes on my back, you're going to see blood and flesh everywhere, you're going to see me shattered and destroyed And you're going to wonder what in the world is happening with this kingdom. So I'm going to give you a preview of the total me. I'm going to show you something to encourage you, just like God showed Moses to encourage him. Moses said, would you please show me your glory? And Moses had it tough. He had to lead a stiff-necked people that rebelled. You remember that moment where Moses asked God, "Why, why did you give this people to me? Why do I have to bear this cross, Moses could have said. Show me your glory. And God shows him his glory. And here the disciples need something similar. They don't understand why they're going to have to die or get persecuted. Later they think they're going to be able to endure persecution, but they can't. Peter denies Christ three times with just a girl asking him. Aren't you, weren't you with Jesus? No! That wasn't me. 
So Jesus is trying to show them something by his clothes becoming radiant, intensely white. He's recreating this Moses moment. But Moses was glowing because he was reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is glowing, glowing because he is the glory of God. And the radiance and the intense whiteness comes from inside of himself. And so he's peeling back the veil, showing the disciples that this whole resurrection thing that I'm telling you about is this. And when you think about Paul in the New Testament, he doesn't say, I want to know Christ and the power of his transfiguration. What does he say? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's the power. So Jesus isn't talking directly about the second coming, but he's, he's giving them a preview of his own resurrection. That's what this passage focuses on. I want to show you four verses right here that we've read. That resurrection is the focus of what Jesus is trying to get them, and if your focus is not the resurrection, you won't endure. You can't live out last week's sermon if you don't understand the power of the resurrection. That's why Mark focuses on it. Look at Chapter 8, verse 31. This is how we started last week's message. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. There's the resurrection. And then in verse 38, same chapter. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's the final one. The reason why people get confused is they attach chapter 9, verse 1 to that statement instead of attaching chapter 9, verse 1 to the next statement, which is the transfiguration. But Jesus says, I'm going to come back in glory with my Father and the holy angels. I'm not going to stay dead. So there's the resurrection again. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them not to tell anyone what they had seen until when? Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. There's a resurrection again. And then you'll see it in verse 10 as well. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead? What is that? See, they get that it's the main topic here. They just don't understand what it means. They're not going to understand it until it happens. So Jesus' transfiguration, this moment of the white radiance, is a preview of the resurrection. I'm not going to stay dead. I'm God. And that is supposed to bring us encouragement because while we follow Jesus in his suffering, we also follow him in his resurrection. We suffer him in, uh, we, we follow him in the pain. We also follow him in glory. I want to show you a few verses. You can turn to them if you like. We'll have them up here on the screen. Uh, in an attempt to really drive this home with other verses where Jesus makes this clear. The first one is Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Jesus tells the disciples, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he, in this context, he's teaching the disciples, your life will be a life of persecution. If your life is not a life of persecution, maybe you're living too quietly. You're not supposed to. Maybe you're being a little too timid about Christ, but if you weren't, you would see that people will persecute you for being loud about Jesus. But be encouraged, because the persecution is not only going to last a short time in your life. No, 
Be encouraged because the persecution is not going to be that bad. Nope. Be encouraged because your reward is great in heaven. I can't see heaven. I don't see what the reward is. That's right. That's why you live by faith and not by sight. Let's look at the next verse. 1 Peter 5. Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, this is the final, that final moment. Jesus coming in glory with his angels. When that moment happens, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, uh, this is also in the context of Peter trying to prepare his readers for a life of suffering. And the hope that he gives them is one day you're going to receive an unfading crown of glory. I don't know about you, but I kind of grew up in a home where we thought of it as literal crowns. Oh, I can't wait till I get my crown. I wonder how many jewels are going to be in it. I wonder what the crown is shaped like. Is it heavy? That might be annoying. Does it cut into your head? Is it padded? We didn't go that far, but I'm just, I'm poking fun of myself, you know? Actual crowns. Look, maybe there's an actual crown, but that's, if you think that's glory, glory is the transfiguration. And Jesus is saying, see how this body's different? You're going to have different bodies. And so Peter's reminding of that. And then Peter, a little bit later in verse 10, again, he's reminding him, you're going to suffer. And after you've suffered for a little while, why a little while? Because your life is short on this, li- on this earth. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now look at the contrast there. Your suffering in this life is for a little while. What hope do I have to get through it? Eternal glory. Little while versus eternal glory. Peter's saying you can endure anything for a little bit if the payoff is forever. And many of us, we live our lives for this little bit and we don't even think about forever. Peter's saying you'll never make it. You'll never make it if your idea of comfort is this life, what you can get now in this life and be comfortable with now in this life, but you can make it if you're reminded that there's eternal glory to be had in Christ. Last one, and I think this is the most clear, Romans chapter 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. An heir gets something, right? You inherit something? What do we inherit? We inherit suffering. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You've got to inherit one thing before you inherit the other. You inherit the suffering in order to inherit the glory. But if you inherit the suffering, that suffering works to do something in you to make you more like Christ and bring you to that final goal of being glorified with Christ. And then verse 18, same passage. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever we suffer in this life, it's not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Two strikes against us in absorbing a passage like this is one, we have a 
small understanding of suffering, and two, we have a small understanding of glory. Many of us in here are really not suffering that much. And maybe you came in here, I'm sorry to be frank, maybe you came in here and you just wanted to make me feel better about being a mother sermon. But we're in Mark 9, man. And heaven is not going to be a big celebration of Mother's Day. You're in here and you're feeling your eyes are a little heavy. Maybe you were up doing something late last night and you know, you're a little tired and you're like, this preacher's going on and on about suffering, but I don't suffer. This message would have more bite if we were somewhere else on the planet speaking to Christians that have to hide from authorities for their faith. And so we don't have a lot of skin in the game oftentimes. We just kind of bump along from church service to church service because the suffering isn't really there. And the suffering isn't really there sometimes because we're just so quiet. But if we ask ourselves, why are we so quiet? Why do we not talk about our faith? A lot of times the answer is going to be some kind of fear. I'm afraid I'll lose my job. I'm afraid it'll be awkward with my friend. I'm afraid if I keep pushing, they're going to snap at me. I'm afraid of doors being shut in my face. We're afraid of a low level of persecution, but we're afraid of it still. And what I'm telling you is Jesus doesn't just leave them with nothing to cling to. He leaves them with this theology of glory that they can't understand yet, but he shows them in his transfiguration. Now, we might be going, well, where's the transfiguration moment for me? It would be great if Jesus pulled me aside and showed me some glory so I can see it. We have the cross and resurrection. They didn't. Jesus... Life, death, and resurrection is the sign. It is that moment that we're supposed to cling to by faith, understanding that Jesus' resurrection carves a path for our resurrection. So this whole world will be resurrected, and our bodies will be resurrected. Think about that. Think about that every time you get bad news from the doctor. Think about that every time it's the morning and it's cold out and it's damp and your bones ache. Think about that every time your eye prescription worsens. Think about that every time the doctor tells you you need a surgery. Think about that when you turn on the news and the world is is getting worse. And even atheistic, uh, non-God-fearing scientists are telling you the world is going to end. Probably global warming if you want to. One, one author recognizing that maybe it's not warming, maybe it's cooling, maybe it's something else, but he calls it global weirding. Things are going, getting out of control with natural disasters, but also man-made disasters. And if our hope that we cling to is hopefully tomorrow will be a better day, Maybe I get a bad report from the doctor this day, but I'm going to go to another doctor. Maybe, maybe I'll get better news from that doctor. If that's our hope, we're still clinging to comfort in this life. But Jesus is saying, I, I need you to loosen your grip on that and recognize that this life isn't always going to be easy. So get out there and take some risks and live a, a daring life for Christ. 
recognizing that no matter what happens to us now, there is a resurrection. That resurrection is going to be glorious. We'll be looking back on this tiny slice of time for eternity. What'd you do with it? What'd you do with it? Moms, what'd you do with your kids? Kids, what are you doing with your moms? Students, what are you doing with your graduation? We invest now courageously for a life of glory. Let's cling to that. Worship team, come on up. and I'd like to invite you to stand with us as we close in this song together.